Today is, this Sunday is, Christ the King Sunday, which is a feast day. That's what we call it on the liturgical calendar. The liturgical calendar is full of feast days and fast days, seasons of fasting and seasons of feasting. And this day, today, is a feast day. This Sunday is. It's a, it's a celebration day. And it's always the last Sunday of the Christian calendar, which means if Advent starts next Sunday, which it does, Advent is always the very first season, and the first Sunday of Advent is the very first Sunday on the Christian calendar. So this is really like New Year's Eve for us. I don't know, it may not feel like it, right? There's not as much hype around the Christian New Year's Eve. But that's what this is. We're about to turn over a new leaf. We're about to start over. So it makes sense if you think about it to end with Christ exalted on the throne, right? Christ the King Sunday before we hit the reset button and begin that season of preparation as we wait for that baby to show up in the manger. But this day, I believe, is a chance for us to reflect on one of the many names that we call Christ, the King of Kings, which I think is fitting for us because we as a society, I think at least, the more I thought about it this week, we as a society are attracted to royalty, to that language of of king and queen, and I think also the status that seems to come with it. Just think about it, the the royal family in England, right? I mean, they have a pretty massive following here in the States when their actions have very little consequence to us, don't they? I mean, like, I think it was when I was in college that there was a royal wedding, somebody got married, and people were waking up at like 3 a.m., 3 a.m., to watch a wedding on TV that didn't really have anything to do with their own country, Just a few months ago when the queen passed, if you can remember that day, it seemed like every news station was completely overrided with coverage of her funeral. But it doesn't even stop there, right? Uh, I think we watch movies about royalty, too. The first one that popped in my brain this week, and Madison, my wife, is going to love this, is The Princess Diaries. Who doesn't love that movie? Come on, come on. Even if you act like you don't like that movie, you love that movie. I came up with my own catchphrase to describe it. I'm pretty proud of it. It's a movie about reluctant royalty. That's pretty good, isn't it? That's pretty good. You know the story. It starts off following this girl named Mia, and she's an awkward high schooler that's not really too sure of herself, and she finds out that her grandmother, right? It's grandmother, isn't it? Is that right? I need some head nods. Her grandmother is the queen of Genovia, and it's a story of her going from this awkward high schooler to be a princess, soon to be queen. And we love it, don't we? We love it. There's this thing called Game of Thrones. It's on HBO. And they just had a new spinoff series called House of the Dragon. And the show is all about this quest, this yearning to have the Iron Throne. And on August 21st, that's when this new season debuted, Do you know how many people watched the first episode of that on August 21st? 10 million views. 10 million views on the first day. We, for some reason, are just infatuated. I think we're drawn to it. 
This royalty, this language of king and queen, this idea of the status that comes with it. We also use it to talk about athletes, don't we? We call an NBA player that's playing right now, we call him King James, don't we? If you follow the NBA, you know that. We use it to talk about musicians. Beyonce goes by the Queen Bee. I think she is the Queen Bee. I'm a big Beyonce fan. I think she's great. We call B.B. King the King of the Blues, don't we? And of course, Elvis Presley is the... The king of rock and roll, that's right. Fun fact, I'm full of fun facts this morning getting into this sermon. Do you know how many people visit Graceland every year? Elvis' home? It's a pretty insane number. Over 500,000 people visit Graceland every single year, which makes it the second most visited private home in America behind only the White House. That blew my mind when I saw that. I'm trying to convince you here. Do you believe me that we as a culture, for some reason, are drawn to kings and to queens, to to the language of royalty and, and to the status that comes with it? And my point in giving you all of those facts and reminding you of a Disney movie and all of that stuff is to try and get you to see that we as a society, we as individuals, we use this language of royalty all the time. And then at least with folks in our pop culture, we don't just use the language, we treat them like royalty too. We pay hundreds or thousands of dollars to watch them perform or to watch them play. We watch their interviews. We make pilgrimages to their home. We treat them like royalty which I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that, right? But I do think it can muddy the water a little bit when we use that same language to talk about Jesus. Because the more I thought about it this week, the more I realized that we don't call other figures or other people in our culture or in our life, we don't call those people the good shepherd, We don't call them the light of the world. We don't call them the living water. We don't refer to them as the bread of life or the son of God. But we do use royal language to talk about both Jesus and a whole host of other people and things and figures in our lives. So because of that, I I think this morning we need to ask the question, What do we mean? What do we really mean when we call Jesus the King of Kings? That song that we just sang. What what do we mean by that when we call Jesus the King of Kings? What are we trying to say about Jesus? Why is this a title that we give Christ or a title that we find for Christ in the Scriptures? Why is this a title that Christ gives Himself? That's a big question to answer. And we're not going to answer all of it this morning, but I think our scripture helps us at least get started. Our scripture reading this morning is from a letter written to a church in Colossae. It's called the letter to the Colossians. It's in chapter one. That's what we're going to read from. And we're going to read verses 11 through 20. So let's read it together and then we'll kind of keep working and see if we can figure out what our answer should be. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power. And may you be prepared to endure all things with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has rescued us from the power of darkness 
and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the body, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him was pleased to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of the cross. This is the word of God for you, the people of God, and we say together, thanks be to God. Did you recognize some of that language from the creed? I did that on purpose because there's some language in our scripture and there's some language in that profession of faith that we believe about Jesus, but that we don't use very often. This text, this, this portion of this letter was one of the lectionary texts for this Sunday. And I, and I think it really does do a good job of helping us get started as we try to find our answer to that question. What do we mean? What do we really mean when we call Christ king? Usually when we read from a letter like this that was written to an early church community, we can spend a little bit of time talking about what was going on with those people when this letter was written to them. We, we can talk about or maybe explore some of the problems that they may have been facing and how the writer of the letter was trying to get them to address those problems or what successes they were having and how the writer of the letter was seeking to celebrate those successes with them, growth in their church, reaching new people for Christ. But with this letter and with this community, we don't really know any of that stuff. This is one of those early church letters, and there's a few more like it in our scriptures where we just don't really know a whole lot of the background information that surrounds it. And I probably spent way too much time reading way too many commentaries this week to try and find something that we could dig our teeth into to help us get a little bit more direction from the context of this letter. And, and I just, I really couldn't find anything. Everybody seems to have a guess about what this community was facing and where they were headed, but nobody really knows for sure. There are two things that most people agree on when it comes to this letter and this church in Colossae. The first is that they were probably in the midst of some sort of hardship or some sort of oppression. And the second is that they were most likely facing some sort of, of false teaching or had some sort of confusion around who Jesus was and what Jesus had had done. And I think perhaps they maybe needed some help from Paul in writing this letter with not just how to make sense of those two things, but how to hold their own hardship in tension with who they believed Jesus is. And I think that's something that we could maybe use a little help with too. Holding the difficulty of life in tension with who we proclaim that Jesus is as the King of kings. You might have noticed that this passage has, has two main sections, really. It was the two different slides. Jason, if you throw that first slide back up there, the first slide is verses 11 through verses 14. 
And it feels like kind of an introductory section to what comes next. But in this section, I think Paul is saying, in a nutshell, that you can be confident that you have been made strong and that you can endure all things with patience because of the one who has rescued us from darkness and transferred us from being citizens of darkness to citizens of light, to inheriting the light, to be citizens of the kingdom of God. Which is why I think the hardship piece makes sense, because this, these first four verses, this seems like something that a people who were facing hardship may need to read. That you have been given strength, a strength that enables you to endure all things with patience, because of the one who has brought you into the kingdom of God. It kind of reminds me of that phrase that we're supposed to live by as as Christians, that we are in the world, but not of the world, right? Because of the one who has pulled us from darkness and made for us a place in the kingdom of God. And all of that is great, But remember this community and remember the questions that they were asking. This was a group of people who it seems like needed to be reminded of just who this Savior, who this Redeemer is that has made this jump possible from darkness to light. In between these two sections, I almost imagined the reader asking the question, how can we be so confident? How can we be so sure that Christ has actually done this? I mean, all of that sounds great, right? It sounds like exactly what we need, what we're looking for. But how can we be so sure that this one, this Savior, this Redeemer has actually done this for us? I think when we go into it with those questions, all of a sudden the second section makes a whole lot more sense. Verses 15 through 20. This is a really dense, heady, kind of heavy section of Scripture. And I think if we're not careful, it's easy for us to either get lost in it or just read it as very surface level and then just keep on going, right? Instead of trying to figure out what this is actually trying to tell us. But I think there is a reason that it is included in this letter. Most folks agree that these verses are from an ancient hymn or ancient creed that focused on the person of Jesus, which means that because of their source, these five verses are believed to be among the oldest texts that we have included in our New Testament, which when you think about it and you think about where this community was and what they needed, it makes sense, at least to me, why this was included in this letter. This community needed to be reminded of who Jesus is. So Paul calls them back to something that they may have already known or that they would have remembered. And I think we might might need to be reminded as well. Because I think this ancient creed attempts to answer the question, who is Jesus? And like I said, the answer that we find in this is more that we can unpack in one sermon, but I do want us to at least try to wrap our minds around what all this section of Scripture is trying to say about Christ. Who is Jesus? He is the image of the invisible God, 
No one has ever seen God the Father, but if you want to know what God looks like, if you want to know what God would act like, what kind of life this invisible God might live, the best place to look, maybe the only place to look, is to look at the life of Christ. A man who ate with sinners. A man who made a place at the table for everyone. Who is Jesus? He is the firstborn of all creation. He was there at the very beginning, and all things were created through him. And he will be there at the very end as well. Who is Jesus? He's our reconciler. He reconciles all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, and he makes a path for us to experience wholeness and redemption and forgiveness and salvation through the blood of the cross. That's who Jesus is. That's who our King is. But even that didn't feel very digestible to me this week. So I kept looking, and I don't know if Jason has already shown you, but I found something else that I think will, will help us package up this section of Scripture in a way that we can perhaps take it with us this morning and help us answer our question, what do we mean when we say that Jesus is King? If you look again, yeah, he has it up there. I want you to notice how many times the word all is used in the Scripture. Every place that is highlighted, one of them says everything, but it is the same Greek word, the Greek word for pas, the Greek word for all. And I think, one, it kind of creates a rhythm that's fitting for an early church hymn or creed, but it also reveals to us what this text is really trying to tell us. In six verses, this word is used eight times. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. In him, all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. In him, all things hold together. Hear that this morning. What does it mean when we say that Christ is the King of Kings? It means that Christ is all things. That Christ is in all things. That there is nothing outside of his reach or his power. There is no place that you can go where Christ is not present. There's nothing that you can face where Christ will not be with you in it. There is no darkness. There is no depths. There are no heights where Christ is not beside you. Because he was there at the beginning. And we know that he will be there at the end. So we can trust that he is here with us now. Christ is in all things. Christ reconciles all things. It means that Christ forgives all things. Which means for us, it it doesn't matter what, what we've done It doesn't matter what mistakes we've made. It doesn't matter how we've fallen short. It doesn't matter what we regret doing or regret not doing in our life. It doesn't matter what we wish we could take back. Christ forgives all. There's nothing that we have done that the cross doesn't 
reconciled. No place that we can run or hide that is too far for Christ to bring us back home into the family of God. Christ forgives all. Christ reconciles all. Because of that, because of what we believe when we say that Christ is the King of Kings, we can live with that confidence that Paul models in the very first couple of verses of this scripture. When we call Christ our King, when we realize and believe that he is in all things and that he reconciles all things, we too can live with that confidence that there is nothing that we cannot endure with patience because we know that we are a people who have been rescued from the darkness and find our home in the kingdom of God. When we call Christ our king, when we call him the king of kings, we're saying that we believe, that, that we know that it doesn't matter what we're facing. It doesn't matter what we have done because Christ is the king. Christ is all. One of the things that I love about this, about this worshiping community is, is that I think we get to be reminded of that each and every week when we come and practice this sacrament, when we come and practice Holy Communion. Because in this practice, one of the many things that we remember, that we believe, is that this King of Kings, this Savior of the world, in whom all things were created through, that that we're invited to his table. And that we remember that no matter what we have done over this past week, no matter how we have fallen short, that there is always a place for us at this table. We get to remember that, that though Christ is our king, Christ is a king who is with us. With us in the mundane with us in the day-to-day, with us each and every week in the simplicity of broken bread and a cup shared amongst friends. My hope is that we might experience those things anew this morning, especially on a Sunday in Christ the King Sunday that I think so often lives in the cloud for us as Christians. We don't really know what to do with it. My hope is that you would remember that Christ is in all things and Christ forgives all things. That Christ is not a king who is up in the clouds somewhere, but Christ is a king who is, who is with us, inviting us to his table each and every week. As we practice the sacrament, as we hear the invitation, as we're reminded of the grace as we take that holy privilege of eating of the bread and drinking of the cup may we know that Christ is all in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit Amen Hey friends, I just wanted to take a moment and say thank you for tuning into our message this week in the gathering we hope you found it meaningful and life-giving As always, you're invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., either in person here in the chapel or online. 
If you want to know more about who we are at Bluff Park United Methodist Church, you're invited to check out our website. There you'll find out who we are, what we have going on, and how you can be a part of it. As always, friends, if there's anything that we can do for you, you're invited to reach out to us. We are here to help you and support you in any way that we can. We hope that you're having a great week, and we look forward to seeing you soon.